say the benediction. <laughs> Many of you know that Tennessee is now what is called a hands-free state, uh, meaning that if when you're out there driving, if you want to make a call or send a text, you need to do it hands-free, or you may well get pulled over, meaning use your Bluetooth device, voice-activated device, whatever the case may be, but it's hands-free. If you want to make a call, if you want to send a message, and the idea behind all of that is to correct just, of course, as a plague upon really the whole nation these in recent years because of our smartphones and such and the convenience and of all that and how it's been abused distracted driving. That's what it's meant to address. I mean, it wasn't that many years ago. Now, this isn't going to address that, but I mean, in terms of distracted driving, I can remember one Sunday morning walking our dog and was nearly run over by a guy eating his cereal, uh, driving with his thighs while in the bowl. I saw the bowl and, and the spoon. I hope it was good. Um, so it's meant to, you know, this isn't going to, the hands-free thing doesn't address uh, foolishness like that. But of course, that's what it's after, is distracted driving. It cannot address the serial guy. It cannot address this other thing. And that is the plague of drowsy driving. It sounds like just a stupid way to put that because it's a really serious problem. That is being sleep deprived while you're getting behind the wheel and barreling down the highway, unaware really of what you're doing and where you're going and any consequences therein. Many studies would indicate that in fact, that is a worse problem that intoxicated drunk driving, because when you're intoxicated, oftentimes that just means you're going slower. You're just doing stupid things slowly. But to be drowsy driving means that you're dulled, you're lulled, you're unresponsive, relatively so, and you're just flying. And there is a terrifying parallel in this uh, being dulled and lulled and unresponsive going down the highway to being dulled and lulled going down through life, unaware, drowsy spiritually. Jesus would have us to be a bit more alert, a bit more aware, and fully engaged and responsive to him. And what it is that he says to us. If you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me now to Matthew chapter 23. After a few weeks, we are now getting back into our series in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, this is the very last part of Matthew chapter 23. It's a short little burst of a text. Uh, it's the first of the Gospels, by the way, if you're trying to find it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. First book of the New Testament. Matthew. Matthew 23 is where we are. A few weeks ago, we started with chapter 23, way back in verse 1, and we're at all the way up through the verse 36. And it was one of those times where it just makes sense to just take the whole of a big text in summary and not to pick it apart in, in isolation. Intentionally, we stopped, though, at verse 36, because if we'd taken verses 37 through 39 in with the rest, we would have missed this priceless jewel because of the larger whole. We surely would have missed this beautiful treasure here that we find here in verses 37 through 39. So the context, of course, is Jesus pronouncing these woes upon the scribes and Pharisees. I'll talk about that here in a few minutes. Immediately following that, we read these words in Matthew 23, verse 37 through 39. Hear God's word. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen 
gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray for just a moment. Lord Jesus, clearly there was a lot more on your heart that day than just wrath, uh, than just righteous anger, uh, which tells us a whole lot about you. Your characteristics and your person is not flat. There's a lot of nuance to the Son of God. And we need to understand that and to learn from that and to live out of that ourselves. We pray that you'd put us there on the steps of the temple, listening, hearing, watching, pondering what it is that we are hearing and its implications for us right now, here today. We pray for your mercy. Would you give us ears now? Amen. I'm just going to dive right into the context. The context is vital to understand. I alluded to that a second ago. It's, it's Holy Week. That is to say that stretch of days between what we often call Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. So Sunday, Palm Sunday, Jesus has come riding on the donkey into the city, hailed as the long-awaited king. On Monday, he comes into the temple precincts and cleanses it as though it's his own. As though it's his own. On Tuesday, he comes back. He's got people's attention, in particular the, the authorities, the scribes and the Pharisees. Without mixing words, Jesus warns the people regarding the religious authorities, the scribes and the Pharisees, and not stopping there, he then turns towards those very men he has warned the broader people, the broader populace about. He turns towards the religious authorities, the scribes and the Pharisees, and warns them and pronounces this sevenfold woe upon them earlier, the bulk of chapter 23. That then takes us to where we are here this morning. Jesus has said some really hard and strong things that we must simply must take seriously in those seven woes. But then he shifts to these surprising things just the hard and strong things, but to these surprising things. He, he makes the shift from shouts of accusation to cries of lamentation, from powerful denunciation to sorrowful lamentation and grief. Within moments, he's made that, that shift. He doesn't just say the hard things, he says the surprising things. Jesus says some stunningly beautiful, surprising things that just as with the hard and difficult things, we need to hear and take seriously, take to heart, lest we be impoverished ourselves. Now, there, in terms of what, so what, what are the surprising things then that you find in this short little burst of a text? Well, it's just simply this, the way Jesus speaks of these two things. The way Jesus speaks of these two things, first, God's passion for his people, that's the first thing, and the second is the way Jesus speaks of God's presence with his people. It's shocking, it's stunning, it's surprising, both the way Jesus speaks of the passion of God for his people, and then secondly, the presence of God with his people. People. Let's look at these two things in, in turn. So 
the passion of God for his people, his desire for them, if you will. There in verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not or you were not willing. Vivid imagery. Striking imagery. Perhaps unexpected, but certainly memorable imagery that we see here. It's obviously from nature. He would have us to, to, to imagine in our, in our mind's eye a mother bird protecting her younglings, getting them underneath her wings, something right out of nature, not too hard to envision that. It's an image of strength and tenderness at the same time. Not one without the other, but both. Strength and tenderness out of the same time. What's, what's interesting is that it's not just though an image out of nature. It's an image that comes right out of the Old Testament because God speaks of himself in this way as well. Keep your thumb there in Matthew 23. Let's go to the Psalms. It's more than just found in the Psalms, but just for simplicity's sake. Uh, Psalm 106, you can see uh, this idea of the Lord as a gatherer of his people. Psalm 106, verse 47. Psalm 106, verse 47. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Or moving further in the book of Psalms, Psalm 147, verse 2. Psalm 147, verse 2. The Lord builds up Jerusalem and he gathers the outcasts of Israel. So his longing to gather his people, also his desire to shelter his people as, as well. So going a little now rewinding in the Psalms, Psalm 17, Psalm 17, verses 8 and 9, you see the, the very same concept, the very same wording. Psalm 17, verses 8 and 9, keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me, or Psalm 91, Psalm 91, verse 4, he will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. So, vivid imagery found not just out there in nature, but way back in the Old Testament as well. Vivid imagery meant to point towards vivid realities, realities that we need to grapple with. One would be divine mercy. Certainly, it has to be at least, at least that much of, of, of shelter in a storm from, uh, from the elements and exposure, shelter, protection, protection from predators. It has to be some of that idea here. So it's mercy, mercy that is to say help for the person in need, help for the helpless, for the, the one that cannot fend for themselves, the powerless coming alongside, excuse me, the powerful coming alongside the powerless. That is mercy, love and care for the one in need, this divine mercy. But it's not just that here. It is that, but it's not just that. Not just mercy, but grace. It's not just help for the needy and the helpless, but help for the guilty. Love and concern for the one, not just children in general, but Children of the betrayer, children of the, the traitorous, traitors themselves. Well, what is the context here? Jesus speaks in, in, in Matthew 23. 
he's speaking here of gathering those who would um, kill, who would kill the prophets, and stone the messengers. That's not just mercy. That's grace. That's who he wants to gather. That's who he wants to protect. That's who he wants to shelter. That's who he wants to bring near. Jesus is speaking here in a surprising way of the passion of God for his people. But it's not, note this, he's not just speaking like God of the passion of God for his people. He's speaking as God. He's speaking as God of the passion of God for his people. And it's absolutely, both those things together, the, the grace and mercy of God is astonishing, and then who is speaking of it and how he's speaking of it is equally astonishing. So surprising, so shocking. I don't know that we're, we really hear it. And, and Jesus is moving in on that. It is the burden of his heart in that moment that, oh, that his people would know the passion of God for them, indeed his passion for them. This grace and mercy is unlike anything the world's ever known and has ever seen. Uh, someone asked me just recently, so how do you know that Christianity is actually true and it's all the other world religions? How do you even, even know? Well, part of the answer, and just in that setting, what I said was what it has to do with the historicity of it. It's not a myth. It's not a fable. It's real. It's, it's why it's no shock when archaeologists come up with yet another find and another find. Well, because it's history. It's grounded in things that have happened. But it's not just that. Pushing further. This message, this grace, this mercy is unlike anything, any other worldview, any other faith, any other approach to God. It's as though it has come down out of the sky, come down out of heaven itself. Oh, well, may, maybe that should tell us something. Every other system is man-oriented. What can I do? How can I pull myself up by my bootstraps? I'll give you an example, karma. Within the Eastern world religions, karma, this, this idea that what you reap in life is a product or an, an offshoot, a result of your deeds in a past life. Now think of that if you really believe that and the consequences of that for your life and the burden that that creates for you. If indeed your existence is a cycle, is a wheel going on for eternity, and what's going on now is a result of what happened before, so what that means is what you want to do now, you want to prepare yourself for a better next life. So work hard, my friend, and try and get kiltered right the balance of scales of justice in what you think you deserve. How freeing is that? It's so completely man-centered. It's so, it's so completely delusional to think that we could actually do enough good to outweigh the bad. It's why it's no surprise Bono, the lead singer of U2, said so wisely these words. I'm going to read these, this to you. This is what he said in an interview. I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to finally be my judge. I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins under the cross because I know who I am, and I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. The point of the death of Christ is that Christ took on the sins of the world so that what we put out did not come back to us, that our sinful nature does not reap the obvious death. So, verse 37 again, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together 
as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not, my friends, how we need those words pronounced upon us this morning. You and I need those words pronounced and embraced upon us this morning. When in our continual backsliding and turning away from Jesus, do you know that's his posture to you? His reaching towards you, even as you are turning from him, that's his posture towards you. As others in your life, do you pain, do you injury, and turn from you? Do you know what your posture then needs to be towards them? Imitative and driven and formed and impelled and compelled by his posture towards you, reaching towards them. Not negating, not negating possibly the need to consider issues of justice and restitution. That's not my point. But reaching not to strike back, but to embrace. What is Jesus' posture towards you? Incredibly freeing. Unlike anything the world has ever seen, these surprising things that Jesus is saying here, how we need to take them seriously, starting first with the passion of God for his people. But that leads us to the second thing, and that has to do with the presence of God with his people. That is equally surprising in how Jesus speaks of that. Verses 38 and 39, see your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, another vivid statement here, not, not talking about a, a mother hen and a brood and such, but this time just mentioning the temple. Just mentioning the temple in that context is going to be a vivid statement because the temple for the first century Jew, it, it, it was at least this, a marvelous, marvelous example of architecture and building and skill. I mean, Herod the Great outdid himself in terms of the design and the execution of what they, what they did there in, in first century uh, Judea. But it was far more than that for the Jewish person. This is a vital, essential, central part of their identity, the temple. And Jesus doesn't just mention the temple. He speaks of its demise. He speaks of its destruction, which was coming in about 40 years when the Roman army leveled it, that in the whole city as well. Uh, it's, it's, just, it's, it's absolutely stunning what he's saying here. Had to put the people on edge. I mean, the house, the house is the temple, the place of God's dwelling. To, to, to speak of it being desolate means it's, it's abandoned, it's deserted, and, and not by man, but ultimately by, by the Lord himself, and imagery, imagery here and, and language, hearkening back to the original temple in the Old Testament, in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 10 and 11, where the presence of God, the glory of God, the Shekinah glory left the temple. Now, that's pointing towards this vivid statement. It's pointing towards another vivid reality. <laughs> Not just God's, the way Jesus speaks in terms of generally God's presence with his people, but what that presence consists of, and who. I don't know if you picked up on this, but, but how Jesus explains this desolation, the cause of it, what's leading to what? Let me read it again, verses 38 and 39, a shocking explanation that he gives. See, your house is left to you desolate. That's verse 38. 
Now, verse 39, for, this is the explanation for that, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the Lord. You see how the temple's desolation is directly connected to Jesus' departure? The desolation of the temple is directly tied to Jesus' departure from the temple. That's his explanation, which then takes us to a stunning implication. Jesus is. He doesn't just speak about. He is the presence of God. Now think with me. You're standing there on the temple steps, on the south side of the temple precincts. You can stand on those steps today. You're standing there in the midst of the crowd. Your physical eyes can see this person standing there in front of you who's ultimately saying, I am the presence of God himself. I am God. Your ears are physically picking up on the sound waves. I mean, you're there. You could reach out and touch this man. Do you see the shock value in this? This Jesus, the one you can see and hear and touch, is the living presence of God himself, God in the flesh. God in the flesh. He's not just speaking. He, certainly, he is, he is speaking of the presence of God with his people, but he's speaking as the presence of God with his people. That's absolutely stunning. Absolutely stunning. You, some of you movie fans may uh, know something about the Stan Lee cameos in so many of the Marvel movies, right? You know, there's Spider-Man or Ant-Man or Iron Man or, or Captain America, the Avengers, whatever. There's, there's always, in every one of them, somewhere embedded, somewhere in, in that two, two-and-a-half-hour movie, uh, a short little appearance by Stan Lee, the guy that created the whole kingdom, if, if, if you will. And he might show up as a janitor or, you know, just a dude in the crowd, or a clerk, or some something, just a little, like, you know, 10-second thing, and boom, and the fans go wild. They just love it. They're looking for it. They, they, they want it. You can find compilation videos, you know, of all of the, of the cameos of Stan Lee, and it was all, it was, it was such a delight. He, he died a few months ago, but it, I, I was reading this past week. He just delighted. He loved doing the cameos, and it didn't take much. You know, just show up on the set, film, boop, 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 and he can go on home. Jesus would not settle for a cameo. He goes all in and writes himself into the story, and not just as a bit player, but as the center of it all. Emmanuel, Emmanuel, God with us is the reverberating promise, building in cadence and intensity over the course of centuries, and it finds its realization in him, God with us. Before his coming, God's presence was always over and above and before. It was on the mountain. It was in the pillar. It was in the cloud, in the temple. And now, there, him, Emmanuel, God with us in the flesh. Think of the... Of, Think with me of the implications of this. This is not a Christmas sermon, but it could be. The implications of this, just for us, you know, tomorrow morning, you are not alone, and you will never be alone. 
Disciple of Jesus, it doesn't matter what your feelings say. It doesn't matter what the, how the circumstances are lying to you. You are not and never will be alone. Because Emmanuel is real. You are never alone. And you need, second thing, you need never doubt his love. You need never doubt his love. There is, being clear on this point, nothing within us that generates that love. I hate to burst your bubble. I know your mama said it was all about you, and so did your preschool teachers but it just isn't. There's nothing in us, there's no explanation for this in us. There's no shred of evidence in you or I that justifies this kind of love. It is completely in him. Sometimes we put it this way around here. There's nothing you can do to make him love you more. And there's nothing you can do to make him love you less. His love just is. It's an unshakable, unchangeable love. Do you know that this morning? In the depths of your being, do you know that? This is one of the surprising things that he's saying to us here. Not just the hard things, not just the difficult things. They need to be heard. But equally so, these shocking and surprising things regarding both his passion for us and his presence with us that we need to take seriously. Now, I, I want to reiterate this as we end, as we close. This is a surprising text. These are surprising things that Jesus says here. But it's not just because of the, the sudden shift, the, the, the 90 degree, or you can almost say 180, but it's not. It's a 90 degree turn that Jesus takes here, moving from the shouts of denunciation to the cries of lamentation. Well, okay, that is surprising. You're just reading it, right? It's like, whoa, I wasn't ready for that. I was ready for an eighth woe. But the shock value, the surprise factor is not just that. It's because only God could speak in the ways that Jesus speaks here. It is absolutely essential that we understand that. Absolutely essential, absolutely vital, absolutely crucial. We see how Jesus understands himself, who he understands himself to be, and how the church, who Jesus, who the church has understood Jesus to be for 2,000 years. We, we profess that, an ancient creed, just a little while ago. And these things that we're seeing here in Matthew 23 are coming out, even in that ancient creed. Well, why is it so vital? Why is it so essential? Why is it so critical that we be razor sharp, clear? on who Jesus is, because only if he is really God should we bother listening to him. Otherwise, he's just another sage. Yeah, he's got some wisdom. He's got some great counsel. Put him in the newspaper besides Dear Abby. Awesome. But if he's God, well, that's a whole other deal. Now, think in terms of the things that are recorded for us 
that therein we really need to listen to. The commands and the rebukes, the parables and the promises, the, the great insight that he gives, the great assurances that he gives, all of that, we can and must listen to simply because he is God. That's one thing why this is vital we be clear on this. But the other is this, and that is only if he is truly God can he actually save us. Because if he's not, he can't. If he's not, he can't. Think in terms of how the Bible describes our great need to be redeemed. That is to be set free from the shackles, uh, the imprisonment, uh, the penalty and power of sin. Well, the thing is, is that every one of us is in desperate need of that rescue and not a one of us can do it. Every one of us is in desperate need of that redeeming work, and not a one of us can do it. It has to be the God-man. It has to be the God-man. Unless he is God, there's no point in listening to him. And unless he's God, he can't save us, but he is God. And therein he says these surprising things that we need to take to heart, both regarding his passion for his people and his presence with us as well. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, that you would cry words of lament over us. Such is your care and your concern. We pray that you would help us to not be as those that you shouted the woes over, but rather that you would help us to really hear and take to heart these surprising things that we find just here in these few verses, these few words, your passion for us, your presence with us. We ask that even today as we reflect on the week gone by, that our thoughts would be shaped by these realities. And as we prepare to engage with this upcoming week, that we would do so mindful, heartful of these realities. We pray in your name. Amen.